audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The series is entitled The Son of God, Understanding the Gospel of John. Part 1, a verse-by-verse audio commentary, which is part of the larger Understanding the Bible series. We're going to continue with our introduction to John before we begin the verse-by-verse commentary. I call this Part 1 because we'll have at least two parts of this great gospel. The Gospel of John. In summary, what have we learned? We've learned that John, the son of Zebedee and Salome, the brother of James, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation, is also the author of this gospel. And we're going to learn that he was particularly close to Jesus. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the inner circle of Jesus. He is the one who took Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his own home while Jesus was hanging on the cross, and that he became a key leader of the infant Christian church. He lived a long life and possibly was the only of the 12 disciples to not face martyrdom, to actually die of natural causes at an old age. We learned that the purpose of the Gospel of John is summarized in John 20, verse 31, that the Gospel of John was written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing in Jesus, you will have abundant life in this world and eternal life in the world to come. And that the theme of this great gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. All right, now, John writes this apostle to persuade us, and he is a incredibly gifted and, how should we put it, believable witness. Because of the things I've just shared, he was very close to Jesus, he was close to the mother of Jesus, he was a leader in the early church, he was baptized and filled and led by the Holy Spirit, he lived a long life and had plenty to share. There is a a tale which we're not sure if it's absolutely true, but it is credible, it's certainly plausible, that when John was an older man, he was in the congregation, he was recognized and honored for being in the midst, and he was asked if he had a word to give a prophetic word, a word of exhortation to the congregation. The aged apostle gets up and he basically has a three-word message, love one another. And apparently when he was queried, because this was seemingly the only theme he ever had, he said, well, if we love one another, it would pretty much solve all the other problems. All right, that's John. He's not just a beloved disciple, He's also a loving disciple. He received of God's love, and he certainly was good at giving it back. So how does he prove that Jesus is the Son of David or the Messiah, as well as the Son of God and divine? As I shared in the previous lesson, he does it through several means. In fact, four means. First of all, he speaks of the seven signs or miracles that happened. Now, Jesus did lots of miracles, and these seem to be more emphasized in what we call the synoptic gospels. Synoptic gospels, seeing things the same. And the synoptics, of course, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They have a lot of similarities, but they have distinctions. They 
complement and counterbalance each other so that we get a far more complete and composite picture. John's gospel is set apart because it's less action-orientated and more identity-orientated. Second thing Jesus does is he gives seven I am statements. These are not just pronouns. They are the divine name. I am who I am. He gives seven discourses or teachings on different things. We'll learn about that very shortly. And then he also offers five witnesses. John, the Baptist, the miracles, the Father, the scriptures, and Moses. From here, we're going to go into more amplification. So let us look now at the proofs of Christ's divinity. We're going to list them. We'll give you the reference. And then when we have our verse-by-verse commentary, we will go into these in more depth. The seven signs or miracles of John's gospel selected to build faith. The first is found in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. The first miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. Cana is, I think, something like three or four kilometers north of Nazareth. Both these places were probably very small in the time of Jesus. We understand Nazareth was no more than 300 people. Cana was about the same, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Nazareth today is, I think, approaching 80,000 people. And it can thank Jesus, having lived there, that it has such notoriety. The second miracle was the healing of the nobleman's son in John 4, verses 46 to 54. The third sign was the healing of the lame man in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. He was at the pool of Bethesda. The sixth sign is found in chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. It's the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle of Jesus to be repeated in all four Gospels. Miracle apart from his own resurrection, which is also, of course, in the four Gospels. Then you have Jesus walking on the water, John 6, verses 15 to 21. And then you have the healing of the blind man, John 9, which is pretty much the whole chapter. And then we have, finally, the seventh sign, or miracle, and that's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. I might even throw in a bonus miracle with the walking on the water. Once Jesus got into the boat when his disciples bid him to enter in, after, you know, of course, doing this great miracle of staying above the water, as soon as he got in the boat, they were immediately at the shore where they were headed. The boat was probably about five or six kilometers from the shore, Jesus gets in, and now they're, they're there. How this happened, it's, it's said so, so plainly, it's said so matter-of-fact that you barely can notice that it's a miracle, but it's there. You can read it for yourself. So these are the seven signs or miracles of John's gospel. Again, turning the water into wine, healing of the nobleman's son, healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, feeding of the 5,000 along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee, healing of the blind man in Jerusalem, and the raising of Lazarus in Jerusalem. And remember what I shared last time, when a miracle was done in Galilee, there was pretty much a majority consensus that, hey, not only is this a great miracle, but the man who performed it is a great man. But when miracles were done in Jerusalem, like 
the pool of Bethesda miracle and the lame man, healing of the blind man and the raising of Lazarus. As we learned, it was a divided group. Some believed and some persisted in unbelief. Now we go to the I am statements, and we will cover these in more detail when we get to that appropriate part of Scripture. The first I am statement, John 6, 35 and 48, I am the bread of life. When you eat of this bread, you live forever. The second I am statement is I am the light of the world. John 8, verse 12 and 9, verse 5. When you follow Jesus, the light of the world, you will never ever be in darkness. You will have the light of life. And because we follow the light of the world and reflect his glory, we become lights of the world too. The third I am statement, I am the door. John 10, verses 7 and 9. When you come through the door, then you find salvation and all the good things of God. The fourth I am statement. I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11 and 14. When you follow the good shepherd, he will lead you, feed you, guide you, provide for you, and protect you. A good companion to this in John 10 is the 23rd Psalm, which is probably the most beloved piece of prose in the English language. Then we have the fifth I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. That's John 11, verse 25. Jesus basically says he isn't just going to be resurrected. He is the resurrection. He brings life where there was death. He raises the dead and gives them new life. In other words, he's also a means of revival, as well as what we believe, a literal, physical resurrection. So when you have Jesus, you have resurrection power, and you have life itself. And he goes on to say, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's an incredible statement, especially when for 2,000 years, Christians have been living and dying, living and dying. But I will just say something now, and then, of course, fuller coverage when we get to John 11. But remember, to understand the statement of Jesus, we need to define the terms. What does Jesus mean when he says, you will never die? What is the nature of death? And what I share is death means separation. It means separation of the soul and spirit from the body. As James chapter 2, verse 26 says, it also means separation from loved ones as well as from others. In fact, from everybody on this planet into a realm that is essentially beyond this planet. It's separation. But when you are connected to the source of life, meaning Almighty God, can physical death separate you from Almighty God? No. The Bible teaches that physical death doesn't separate you from God. On the contrary, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To be absent from the body, says the Apostle Paul, is to be present with the Lord. You become even more alive after physical death if you're a believer than ever you were on this planet. That's why he is called the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the I am the God of, meaning even though these guys, the patriarchs, lived 4,000 years ago or less, they are alive unto God now because of their faith, because of the grace of God, and so on. Therefore, when you live and believe in the Son of God who tasted death for you 
and me so that we would never taste it ourselves, then we can never really die. But we'll cover this even more in John chapter 11. The sixth I am statement, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6. So here again, he's equating himself personally with life, abundant life, fruitful life, effective life, and eternal life. Now, of course, he says he's the way, meaning he's the way to the Father, and he is the truth. It is very common in postmodern society to say there is no absolute truth, just a plethora of truths. And one person's truth is true to them, as well as another person's truth to them. But that is not the teaching of Scripture. That is a postmodern relativistic mindset. Now, there is a little point in all this. It's like saying if you're sitting in a room and one person feels hot and one person feels cold, even though they're side by side in the same room with the same temperature, who is correct? Well, in theory, they're both correct. If someone feels hot, they are. And if someone feels cold, they are in the same room, next to the same person. But we do believe, and the scripture affirms, there is universal truth that applies to all people and applies at all times. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now, either he's telling us the truth or he's not. Either he knows what he's saying or he missed the boat, so to speak. Or as Josh McDowell once put it, he's either Lord or liar or lunatic. The case that John's gospel makes is overwhelmingly on the side that Jesus is knows what he's saying, he's telling us the truth, and he is Lord. The seventh I am statement is found in John 15, verses 1 to 5. I am the true vine, and every branch that abides in me will bear much fruit, and if it's bearing fruit, it's going to be pruned, so it'll bear even more fruit. But every fruitless branch will be pruned off, cut out, and put in the fire. A little sobering, but it's a good wake-up call to live your life to the full for God. Then there's seven discourses in the Gospel of John. These are teachings or messages with a very strong spiritual theme. The first discourse in chapter 3 is about the new birth. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, who's one of his quiet disciples, that you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. In chapter 4 of John's Gospel, he tells the woman at the well, in Samaria, that he is the water of life. Drink natural water, you will thirst again. Drink the water of Christ, you will never thirst again. In chapter 5 of John's Gospel, you have the discourse of Jesus as the divine Son, or the Son of God. In chapter 6, you have Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am bread from heaven, just as manna in the days of Moses was bread from heaven, sustaining the children of Israel during their wilderness sojourn. So Jesus says, I am the true bread from heaven. When you ate the manna from the days of Moses, you would get hungry again. Eat of this bread, you will not only not hunger, you will live forever. In John chapter 7, it speaks about the life-giving spirit. In John chapter 8, is the discourse about being the light of the world. And the final discourse is John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd. And remember, this is parallel to Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, David, who wrote Psalm 23, 
himself was a shepherd, but he's actually now being the under-shepherd of God himself. And in fact, when David went from being shepherd in Israel to king of Israel, it still was with a shepherding mindset. He was king in order to serve and to help and to lead the people of God. David is acknowledging that the ultimate leader, the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate provider is Almighty God himself. And then finally, we have the five witnesses. And we'll talk about this very shortly in the next program. taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.